Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Our text this morning is Acts 21 verses 1 through 16. But as we come to hear the reading and the preaching of God's Word, let's ask for God's help to understand what He's saying to us. Let's pray. Lord, You taught us to pray, Your kingdom come. Come now and speak to us through Your Word. Grant unity to those who seek it and tend your lambs in this community so that the lost may enter into this house of worship and experience the presence of Christ through us. We ask this for His sake and in His name. Amen. Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found the ship, crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, uh, fifth grade and under, come up and join me. All right, good to see you all. Come on up. Yeah, plenty of room. There you go, right up front. All right. So a lot of you know this because you come on Wednesday nights, but you know that just about every single week, we have to take down most all of these chairs, and what do we have to put up? Tables, yeah. And, and then when Wednesday night is all over, what do we have to do? We have to take down the tables and put the chairs back in place. Yeah, do you know who does all of that? Yeah, youth group does a lot of that. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but to say it another way, 
The people who do all that hard work are people who have other stuff that they want to do too. No. Uh, do you know that none of your Sunday school teachers get paid? Not a one. They, but they put in the hard work anyway. Oh, and you know that feeling that you get when you are ready to go home after church, but your parents are still talking? You know that feeling? Well, there is somebody, not me, somebody who usually has the job of being the last person in the church because they have to lock the church up. And now, I, let's, let's give that person some credit. They're probably partly happy to see so many people enjoying each other, but do you think they might sometimes feel a little bit like you do when they're watching people just standing around and talking? When they're ready to go home and rest. You think so? Yeah. Well, there are all sorts of hard things that people here at Trinity are willing to do. But the hardship of it doesn't seem to stop them from doing it. Well, in what we just read, Paul is thinking the same way. He, he knew that a hard thing was waiting for him in Jerusalem. People who did not want Paul to preach about Jesus were going to have him arrested in Jerusalem. And so Paul's friends were like, hey, don't go. Just don't go there. But Paul told him, I'm ready. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul knows what kind of hardship, what kind of suffering is ahead of him, but it's not going to stop him from going anyway. Why? Why is he willing to suffer like that? Well, it's simple, really. He knows that Jesus suffered worse for us. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and me. He was ready to give up his life so that we could be forgiven and brought into God's family. That, that suffering that he knew was going to happen, it didn't stop Jesus from doing the job that God had given him to do. But because Paul also knew that not only did Jesus suffer, but Jesus, di Jesus died and rose again, Paul knows that death and suffering, all of that, has been defeated. And that means that no suffering, no, no matter how hard the thing is that we do for Jesus' sake, that suffering will not have the last word over us. And so Paul himself, he's willing and ready to die in Jerusalem doing what Jesus wants him to do because he knows that whatever suffering he experiences, it's going to be small and it's going to be quick compared to the beautiful life that he is going to share with Jesus forever afterwards. He can see past the pain to see Jesus on the other side of it. And that's why so many people here in your church family are ready and willing to do hard things around here. When we remember that Jesus suffered, but now lives to make you and me totally secure, totally secure, we can, like Paul, be ready and willing to suffer hard things for Jesus' sake. We can set up chairs when we would much rather just go home. We can cook a meal when we're having a super busy week, cook a meal that somebody else is going to eat because we're ready and willing to do that. We can love people when they're being hard to love. 
We can even wait patiently when people are talking, but we're ready to go home, right? We can be ready and willing to do whatever Jesus gives us to do because He has already saved us. And He promises He's going to be with us to carry us through even those hard, painful things. And because not even death itself can ultimately hurt us, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seat. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Acts 21. Our text this morning, as Sam said, is Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And this is actually the, the conclusion of a narrative that began back in chapter 19. If you'll turn back there quickly, you'll, you'll see in verse 21 that after spending some two years ministering in Ephesus, uh, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to, to encourage the churches that had been established there and then to go to Jerusalem. Now you remember that his plans were delayed by a riot, a, a riot that was provoked by the silversmiths there in Ephesus who were afraid of, of losing their source of income because of Paul's teaching about uh, idolatry, saying that uh, gods made with hands are not gods at all. And that, that riot delayed Paul's plans to go to Jerusalem. But again, Luke tells us that after the uproar ceased, Paul undertook his planned journey, and he, he was even hastening towards Jerusalem, hoping, if possible, to, to be there on the day of Pentecost. And it was in the course of this journey, you'll remember, that, that Paul called the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus so that he could, he could give them one last charge, one last encouraging word. And it was that charge, that final charge of Paul to the Ephesian elders that has been our focus for the past three Sundays. But now we are picking up the story as, as Paul leaves the Ephesian elders and resumes his journey towards Jerusalem. And Luke writes that when we had parted, indicating that he is with Paul at this point, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came to Kos and then Rhodes and then Patera before uh, finally getting on a larger ship that could cross the, the open waters of the Mediterranean and head towards Phoenicia. But what I want us to notice this morning, it's not simply the, uh, the travel itinerary of Paul and his companions. That's obviously prominent in the text that is before us this morning. But rather, what I want us to focus on, what I want us to, to wrestle with, is the apparent uh, contradiction in the Spirit's guidance. The, the apparent contradiction between what, what the Spirit seems to be telling Paul and what the Spirit seems to be telling everyone else. And I want us to, to notice that contradiction, and I want us to notice how that contradiction is resolved so that we can then ask what this means for us today. So first, let's look at the, the contradiction itself, or the apparent contradiction itself. We, to see this, we must first remember uh, that Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem in the Spirit. As I said, that's what we see back in, in chapter 19. If you haven't already, turn, turn back there. We're, we're told that Paul has, has been in Ephesus for some two years. We, we see that up in verse 10. He's been ministering out of the hall of Tyrannus for some two years. And at the end of that season, uh, we're told in verse 21, that now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. 
And of course, he intends to go from Jerusalem on to, to Rome. But, but now, his, his initial plan is to get back to Jerusalem. Originally, I think he wanted to get to Jerusalem by uh, Passover, but with the riot, that couldn't happen. And so now, after the riot, his hope is to be there by Pentecost, which comes some seven weeks after Passover. And so Paul has resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And the fact that Paul is being led by the Spirit is confirmed in his conversation with the Ephesian elders. Look again at chapter 20, verse 22. There, Paul is, is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and you'll remember that, that he begins by looking back on his ministry among them, and then turning his attention to his, his future ministry after he leaves them. And in verse 22, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading me to go to Jerusalem. More than that, the Spirit is constraining me to go to Jerusalem. This is the Lord's plan, and He is working it out in the course of my ministry. And so Paul is going to Jerusalem in accordance with the Spirit's guidance and leading. But at the same time, People were encouraging, even pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They didn't want him to go there because they knew the trouble that he would encounter when he arrived there. They, they knew that, that going to Jerusalem was dangerous for Paul. The Jews outside of Jerusalem had already caused Paul uh, you know, un- uncountable troubles uh, in his missionary journeys. And now he's going into uh, the heart of the, the Jewish people. He's going to Jerusalem where he will most certainly be violently opposed. And so people are encouraging him. But notice that it's not just that, that people are encouraging him. We're told that they are doing this in <coughs> the Spirit. <clears throat> We see this first in uh, verse 4 of our text this morning. Again, we, we have Paul's travel itinerary, and we're told that they arrive in, in Tyre. Uh, but notice what we're told. He says, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. They, they stay in Tyre for seven days, most likely because uh, they are transferring ships. They're, they're getting off one ship that is being unloaded, and they're, they're waiting either for that ship to be reloaded and set sail again, or, or more likely they're waiting for a larger ship to uh, set sail so that they can cross the open waters of the Mediterranean and return uh, to uh, the, the coast near Jerusalem. But for one reason or another, they're there uh, for seven days. And through the Spirit, over the course of those seven days, uh, the people were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So it's not just that they were telling them not to go, but through the Spirit, they were telling them not to go. And we see the same thing when Paul arrives in Caesarea. So Paul has now set sail. He's arrived in, in Caesarea, and Paul is there in Caesarea staying with Philip the Evangelist. We're told that he is one of the seven, one of the, the seven that had been appointed uh, to oversee the, the distribution of the alms in the Jerusalem church. But he has left uh, Jerusalem uh, during the persecution that followed Stephen's uh, ministry. And he has settled in Caesarea, where he has been now for some 20 years. And Luke gives us this interesting uh, fact that four of his daughters were, were prophetesses. 
That doesn't say much else. It's just an interesting uh, fact. When you see facts like that in the text, it's almost certainly because uh, these uh, prophetesses were known to the people who were receiving uh, the text and, and were sources that Luke used in writing out the narrative. But they're not the ones who actually give the prophecy in this context. They're, they're mentioned, but it's another prophet, a prophet from Judea, a prophet who we've seen before, remember, in the book of Acts. Uh, who who comes, uh, his name is Agabus, and he takes Paul's belt and he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here now we have a, a prophet of God prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit saying that Paul is going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles when he arrives in Jerusalem. <coughs> and Luke tells us, that when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So we, being Paul's companions, and the people there in the church in Caesarea, began to urge him not to go to Jerusalem. And so what we see is twice here in the text, we have people in the Spirit imploring Paul not to go to Jerusalem, even though Paul, in the Spirit, has resolved to do just that. And it leaves us in something of a conundrum, does it not? It's a, it's a, it's a question that we, we have to wrestle with. How are we to make sense of this seeming contradiction? Well, let's just begin with the obvious. Here in this congregation, we are going to assume that the Spirit is not contradicting Himself. All right, let's just, let's just set that up front. That's just an assumption. That's a presupposition that we are beginning with. We are beginning with the assumption that the Spirit is not confused and He does not give contradictory advice. Now, if you had a friend whom you knew to be an honest person, who knew to be a virtuous person, and you heard contradictory stories about them, you would assume that there was some resolution, would you not? How much more ought we to assume that there's some resolution to this when we read uh, that the Spirit seems to be giving contradictory advice. So just on principle, we're going to start with the assumption that the Spirit is not contradicting Himself. In the same way, we're going to begin with the assumption that the Spirit is not vacillating. Uh, he hasn't changed His mind. We don't think that the, that the Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem and realize what was going to happen when he got there and, and decide, oh, no, 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 that's actually a bad idea. Don't, don't do that. We don't think that, that Paul is somehow wrong here not to receive the course correction that he is receiving from the people who are imploring him not to go. That would actually go against the entire flow of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, is uh, the second half especially, is the story of, of Paul going to Rome and preaching the gospel unhindered. And so this is part of the, the progressing narrative that we have seen throughout the book of Acts. There's no hint here in the text uh, that Paul was, was wrong uh, to go to Jerusalem or that he was somehow outside of God's will. But rather, Paul is here presented as faithfully fulfilling God's call upon his life. And so the Spirit is not contradicting himself, and he's not vacillating. So that then brings us back to the question, how are we to make sense of this? And I think the best answer is to recognize that the people who were urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, they were not misunderstanding the Spirit so much as they were misapplying the Spirit's message. They understood what the Spirit was saying. They understood that Paul was going to encounter significant trouble when he arrived in Jerusalem. 
They understood that he was going to be arrested and, and bound when he got there and, and possibly even killed. They, they knew what the Spirit was saying, but they mistakenly jumped to the conclusion that that meant he shouldn't go. Because they loved Paul. He, he was, to many of them, a father in the faith. He was, to many of them, a, a co-laborer. He was someone who they had worked alongside and, and been ministered to for, for years. They, they loved Paul. And they did not want him to go to Jerusalem if it meant that he might be killed there. So they jumped to the wrong conclusion. They, they jumped to the conclusion that he shouldn't go. We, we don't see this as clearly in the first account because it's just one little sentence, but we, we see this, uh, I think, more clearly in the second account, the, the account about Agabus. Notice what happens. Agabus gives his prophecy. What does he say? He says, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound just like this when he arrives in Jerusalem. And that's the prophecy. The prophecy is that he is going to be bound. The prophecy is that he is going to be arrested. The prophecy is that he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And it's in response to this prophecy, Luke tells us, that when they heard this, they urged Paul not to go. The urging not to go is, is their own conclusion. But it is an unwarranted conclusion. And Paul knows it. Notice how Paul responds to them. Uh, he, he says, what are you doing breaking my heart? Why are you weeping like this? Why are you, you crying for me? I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, this echoes what Paul had told the Ephesian elders. Back in chapter 20, Paul had, had told the Ephesian elders that I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. The Spirit had not revealed to him in detail everything that, that Agabus revealed. He didn't know in detail exactly what was going to, to happen to him. But he did know this. He said, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Paul knew that, that imprisonment and affliction were, were going to be part of his lot as a minister of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. But what did he say? He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. I am ready to suffer I am ready even to die in order to do the work that I've been given to do. I have been called to this by God Himself. I am a slave of Christ. And I am willing to suffer whatever is necessary in order to do that work. Paul, that was Paul's position. And so when Agabus testifies that he is going to be uh, imprisoned when he gets to, to Rome, it's, it's, it's a new detail, but it's, but it's not surprising information. He knew what was headed to him. And so he tells the people, please stop weeping. Stop breaking my heart. I know what is before me. And yet I must go. And when we begin to, to see the big picture, we can say that the Spirit is not contradicting himself or, or, or vacillating in his advice. Rather, he was clearly revealing the suffering that awaited Paul in Jerusalem. And it was the people who jumped to the wrong conclusion, misapplying the word, suggesting that because of that suffering, Paul should not go. But when Paul explains to them, listen, I know what's before me. I know that, I should, uh, that I'm going to suffer. 
The people may not have been fully persuaded. Uh, in fact, all we're told is that Paul would not be persuaded. They may still have, have wished that he wouldn't go. They may still have thought that, that Paul was, was misreading things. But ultimately, they were willing to, uh, to step back and to say, the Lord's will be done. If it's the Lord's will for you to go, go. If it's the Lord's will for you not to go, then He'll turn your ship around. But we're going to turn you over. We're going to entrust you to the Lord. The Lord's will be done. And so we're able to understand that, that, that while at first it appears uh, that the Spirit is, is, is contradicting Himself, in reality, that's not what's going on. But what's the significance of this for us? It, it's an interesting puzzle to work out. It's an interesting puzzle to, to try to, to solve, to understand uh, how we, uh, the apparent contradiction can, uh, can be only apparent. But what is the lesson for us today in the church? Well, let me start by saying what the lesson is not. I do not think that this is a text about how we should expect the Spirit to guide us today. This is, this is not a text about how to discern God's will for your life. We know that the, the Spirit directed Paul's ministry in an extraordinary way. That means an extraordinary way, not an ordinary way. We see this at the very beginning uh, in his call. Uh, he is uh, knocked off his horse by uh, the resurrected Lord and, and blinded for, for three days as the Lord calls him into the ministry. It is an extraordinary call. It's not the way most of us uh, receive or perceive God's call upon our lives. We don't, uh, not many of us have that Damascus Road experience. And then, Paul's journey, Paul's missionary work is, is guided by the Spirit in a, in a continuing extraordinary way. It starts when he is, when the Spirit himself, uh, uh, speaks at a prayer meeting and tells the people to send Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And it continues as, as Paul is, is then prevented by the Spirit from going into Asia as he has planned and is sent instead, uh, west into Macedonia. And of course, the ongoing direct involvement of the Spirit is, is testified to by Paul himself as he is speaking to uh, the Ephesian elders. The, he tells the elders that the, the Spirit testifies to him in every city that he is going to face trouble. And of course, it was the Spirit who was constraining him to go to Jerusalem. And so we, we see that, that Paul experiences the guiding of the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way. And nothing in the New Testament leads us to believe that this is going to be the ordinary experience of, of every believer. I've been, I'm reading a book right now, and uh, the, uh, the author of the book actually makes that claim. He says, what we see the Spirit doing with, with these people in the New Testament is, is how every believer ought to experience the leading of the Holy Spirit. But if that's what you believe, you will soon be disillusioned. Because it's not what the New Testament teaches. It's not what the New Testament even suggests. The majority of the people in the New Testament do not, are not led in their daily calling the way that, that Paul is led. And on top of that, we don't have prophets and prophetesses uh, in the church in the same way that they were there in the first century. After Pentecost, there were many, an abundance of, of prophets and, and prophetesses in uh, the early church who were able to, to speak God's Word directly to God's people. And it was through the ministry of the apostles and the prophets uh, that the, the faith was once for all delivered to the saints and the, and the church was, was founded. Paul telling us in Ephesians that the church is built upon that very foundation. 
We do not have uh, prophets and apostles in the church today in the same way. We do not have people who are, who are speaking the very words of God with God's own authority to the church. We have the written word of God. And we do have the Spirit opening our minds to understand it and, and to apply it. Please don't hear what I'm saying as suggesting that the Spirit's work is done. The Spirit is still at work in His church. The Spirit is still guiding Christians today uh, in, in living out the, the Christian life. In fact, if you are a member of this church, you have resolved in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit that you will live as becomes a follower of Christ. But in today's world, the Spirit more often leads through wisdom rather than direct word. Wisdom is skill in the art of, of godly living. It's, it's skill in the art of applying God's revealed word uh, to our particular situations. And we should not expect a direct revelation from God every time we have a decision to make uh, about the course of our daily lives. Instead, we should pray for the Spirit's wisdom to help us to discern uh, a good path forward that will be to the praise of God's glory and the good of our neighbor. And so we begin just by recognizing that, that Luke is not here giving us a, a manual for how to uh, discern the Lord's guidance in our life. But this, this does bring us to a, a second application. Because what we see here is that those who were receiving direct words from the Lord could still misapply them when trying to figure out what they actually meant for them uh, in the course of their own daily lives. And if those who had direct words from the Lord could misapply them, how much more uh, could, might we misapply uh, what we read? And so there is a need for humility as we seek to work out uh, the proper application of God's Word in our particular circumstances. Think about it. No one is in doubt about God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. It is, it is the, the second great commandment. It is, it is what we know we are called to. But how often have you been confused about what it might look like to love your neighbor well? Whether that neighbor was one of your children, whether that neighbor was a literal neighbor, whether that neighbor was a coworker, How often have you struggled to know what, what is it actually going to look like? For me to, to love well, I, I think back to uh, the, uh, the pandemic and, and the, uh, the, the disagreements that arose during the pandemic. There were some who were saying to love your neighbor well means to wear a mask. And there were others who were saying to love your neighbor well means to not require people to wear masks. And, and I don't want to rehash that debate, but I, what I want you to recognize is that there were good believers, faithful Christians on both sides, struggling to understand how do you love your neighbor well in the midst of this kind of situation. And if we can disagree about how to love your neighbor well, then it's essential that we hold our conclusions about the applications of God's Word in our particular situations with humility. That we not assume that, that someone who has reached a different conclusion is therefore an enemy of God and, and an enemy of His church. But rather, we, we respect one another. We, we, we hold in humility the, the unity of the church even if we're coming to different conclusions about what that might mean. And in the end, we, we entrust the church to God and say, the Lord's will be done. I may not be persuaded, but I see that you're not going to be persuaded either. And may God rule in His church. 
And so there's, there's a call here to, for humility as we seek to, to work out what it means to, to honor God and to love our neighbor in the course of our daily lives. But even that call to humility, I do not think, is, is the main thing uh, that Luke wants us to see here. But rather, the main thing that, that Luke wants us to see is the thing that, that Sam was emphasizing with the children. And that is this. That is the, the absolute requirement that disciples of Jesus Christ be ready and willing to suffer in God's service. We have to understand that suffering is not evidence that we are outside of God's will or, or somehow not in the center of God's will. We, we so often think this way. We so often think that if, if I was just doing what, what God wanted me to do, then, then my life wouldn't be so hard. If I was just doing what God wanted me to do, then, then I wouldn't be suffering so much. I must be somehow outside of God's will if He's allowing these things to happen. Well, I would suggest to you that John the Baptist was smack dab in the middle of God's will when he got his head cut off. Suffering is not evidence that we are outside of God's will. On the contrary, suffering is often part of God's will for His people. It's what, the, it's what Paul told the Ephesian elders. The Spirit revealed to me that wherever I go, I'm going to face suffering. And yet I go as a servant of Christ. And Paul said this not only about himself, he said it about all Christians. He said about all those who desire to follow Christ and, and live righteously, they will suffer. And he learned that from Jesus himself, who said a servant is not above his master, but if they persecuted me, they will persecute you when you serve me. And therefore, like Paul, we must be willing to suffer in God's service. Sometimes those sufferings will be small. The, the inconvenience of having to, to stick around to, to, to set up chairs after Wednesday night or, or the, the, the inconvenience of, of having to, to do this or that in order to, to serve our, our neighbor. Sometimes those sufferings will be more significant. Few of us have, have suffered the way that Christians suffered in the first century or as Christians today suffer in other parts of the world, but there is always hardship and, and suffering that is accompanied with denying ourselves to do the work that God has called us to do. You're not called to do the work that Paul was called to do. You're not an apostle. You, uh, you, you're not a, a, a missionary. Though God may be calling some of you uh, to such work, to be missionaries of His, His gospel here in Cleveland and around the world. But whatever your calling, you have been given work to do by God. You have been called into His service. And as you seek to do that work, whether it's, it's the work that you uh, have uh, at your job, whether it's the, the work of raising your kids in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, whether it's the work of, of being an encouragement and a, and a friend to a neighbor, whatever the work is that God has prepared for you to do, it will cost you. There will be suffering involved and you must be prepared to suffer in the service of your king. That doesn't seem desirable. It doesn't seem good. Why, why would we choose such a thing? And even Paul says, listen, if, if Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied above all men because we are voluntarily suffering in these ways. But of course that means that because Christ is raised, we are not to be pitied. 
Because Christ is raised, we are blessed even in our suffering. How is it that we are able to, to accept the Lord's will even when that will leads us to the valley of the shadow of death? Because we know that Christ crossed that road for us first. And in Him, we have been redeemed. In Him, we have been set free from, from the bondage of sin and death. In Him, sin and death have been defeated. They have lost their victory and their sting. So that now our eternal good is secure. And we can walk whatever road God puts before us knowing that the, the afflictions of this life can only be slight and momentary. They can't last more than this lifetime. And they can't do more than kill us. That's the reality. And we can say that with all seriousness because we know that our eternal good is secure in our resurrected Lord. In Him, we have a living hope and an imperishable inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. And because we have such security, we can face whatever road He sets before us in this life, knowing that nothing can undermine our good and nothing can separate us from His blessing. And because we have such security, because we can, like Paul, say, yes, I know I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to Jerusalem. Because we have that assurance. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace to us in Christ. Thank You for the ways that You have secured our future inheritance through the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. May You allow this living hope to put down deep roots in our heart. And may You allow it to set us free to serve You here and now, even when the path of service requires suffering. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.